0: We're in week two in our series that we've entitled Man at Work, and we're going to be focusing our time in the text this morning, looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, and we're going to be looking under the heading of the title, The Real Deal, as we continue to embark on this journey, learning how the Son of Man paved the way to this great God that we have sung about this morning, this unchangeable God whom we were out of fellowship with, but because of Jesus, this man at work, the Son of God who came, that we might have life and have it in all abundance. And so we're going to look at that text this morning. Now, we looked last week at uh, an introduction, looking at Mark, the author of this book, a flawed man, a man who struggled with some failures in his life. Then we looked at John the Baptist. Uh, The beginning introduction of this book shows his ministry right away, and we see a man who is incredibly focused on the task ahead of him. And we talked and gave warnings to those who are flawed and to those who are uh, incredibly focused, and the warnings to have our focus on the right thing and not to live in our times of failure. And how both of these men, incredibly different men, used their Abilities to speak to the greatness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand as we read God's Word, and then I'll ask for a a blessing on our time. This is what it says. uh, I'm reading from the NIV version. It says, At the time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father God, we have sung your praises this morning, speaking of your greatness. And Lord, now we speak to the greatness of your Son. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would draw us near to you this morning. Jesus, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through your example, that we would see you in all of your splendor, and all of your majesty, that though you came to put flesh on, you lived a life of perfection. You experienced everything that we did, the temptations and the struggles of life but you did so without sin. Lord, let that be our example this morning. And Lord, we pray to the Spirit and we say, Spirit, descend upon us like that dove did, that we would be able to hear, you are my children, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Lord, let that be our desire. Let us long not for the affirmation of men, but the affirmation from you. So Lord, speak through me. I pray that this will be a time that will transform our thinking and our living so that we might bring glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I came upon a newspaper article a couple Sundays ago in the Chicago Tribune speaking to a new trend that has come about as a result of the economic downturn. And the article spoke from uh, a mom who had changed her whole way of shopping. She said, no longer do we search for the name brands, we search now for everything and all things generic. Not name brand clothes, but generic clothes. Not name brand food, but generic food. We even chew generic gum. We make sure that everything that we buy, because our our income has dropped, is that of the generic or imitation label. Now the reason why is uh, they had been at a certain income level, and because of this economic downturn, their husband had lost many hours of work that he used to have, and as a result of that, instead of pursuing that which was name brand, they searched after that which was generic. And she spoke to that some things you can't even tell the difference, but on many things there was a remarkable change in the quality, in the taste, in the longevity of that which was generic. Now, generic things aren't anything new. We've had generic items on our shelves and, and in our uh, closets for some time. In fact, I have a friend from high school who spent, who, uh, who is making loads of money as a wholesaler of knockoff golf clubs. Millions of dollars. Instead of it coming from Callaway or Ping, it comes from pl- companies like Big Brother. It looks the same, it feels the same, but the price tag is far less. And as a result of that, his phones ring off the hook. Dozens of operators work for him to take these orders of golfers who don't want to pay the high end prices, but are willing to buy that which is imitation, that which is generic. And that brings up the issue. We are willing to give up some of the excellence and even some of the greatness of having a name brand product because the price is far too much for us to bear. And I want you to remember that statement. We buy generic instead usually, and the article spoke of this, usually uh, instead of name brands because of the price. If we had the money and money was no object, of course we would go and buy those name brand items. But the price is too prohibitive. But we come to a passage this morning where we are introduced once and for all to Jesus, the main character in this Gospel of Mark. And in this uh, short section of scripture, we're going to see that Jesus is not imitation, Jesus doesn't play the part of some generic Savior or generic teacher, but He is the real deal. And what we need to recognize this morning is that we do not serve a knockoff Jesus, one who looks the part and may play the part, but in the end isn't really the real deal. But he is, once and for all, the one who has come. He is the real Son of God, the one who can take away our sins. Now, here is where it runs into our lives, because sadly, so many of us as Christians are living generic lives. We're not living the life that God has called us to. If you will, we sometimes find ourselves living lives of imitation. Oh, we look like Christians, we smell like Christians, we talk like Christians, and even some of our activities play the part of a Christian. But sadly, the scriptures over and over again tell us that that type of life, that imitation Christianity, while it may fool everybody else in the crowd, It will not fool God because he knows what the real deal looks like. And over and over again, the scriptures tell us to beware of this kind of imitation Christianity. The scriptures warn us over and over again that generic Christianity is not a Christianity that will allow you to spend eternity in heaven. And that's why you hear verses like that of Matthew where Jesus says, Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. And they'll speak of all of their accolades. And Christ will say, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Paul likewise says in uh, his writing to the Corinthian church that we are to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Because he understood that we are prone to uh, deceive ourselves into thinking that we are actually the real deal when we're not. Peter articulates this in his letter to the church when he says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let me put it another way for us this morning. Think for a moment some 150 years ago out in the countryside of California, thousands of men going to search for riches and imagine that you're one of those great men that are out there looking for riches in the form of gold And all you can see around you on that canyon is gold upon gold upon gold. And you're chipping away at it, filling sacks full of this gold. And as you're coming back to cash in on your great, if you will, uh, treasure, you're imagining in your heart the great change of your life that is going to take place when you're able to cash that in. And then think upon the sadness when you find out that your bag is not filled with gold but filled with a mineral called iron pyrite, otherwise known as fool's gold. The devastation that will come upon the Christian who has filled his sack with fool's gold, thinking that when I present this before Jesus, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and when you present it before your Lord and Savior, he will say, that's worth nothing. The Bible makes it clear That we are to do all that we can to be like Jesus and to be the real deal. But what does that look like? The real deal involves three things from our text this morning that we see in Jesus' example. Now I want to make this abundantly clear because I do not want to have to disclaim this over and over again. None of these three things in and of themselves can save you. They can't save you. It is only by the grace of Almighty God through a humble heart of faith that comes humbly to God and says, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of Jesus that you can experience salvation. So none of these things can save. But what these things do is they, if you will, validate that which you've said with your mouth. Now is how you're living your life. And so Jesus says he's the real deal. And by looking at his example through these three events, we will find out if we are the real deal as well. So let's look at the first one this morning. If we want to know if we're the real deal or not, looking at Jesus' life, we need to ask the question, have I experienced the joy of being baptized? Have I experienced the joy of being baptized? Notice what the text says. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As he was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased we need to understand, first of all, the importance of this event. All four gospel writers speak to this momentous event and speak to its importance, not only in the life of Jesus, but as we study more of the New Testament on this subject of baptism, the utter importance that baptism holds in the life of the believer. I want us to notice a couple things. Even though Mark's version of this story is by far the shortest, we learn a lot about what is going on. The first thing I want you to notice this morning, write this in your outlines, is the distance. The distance. Now it tells us in verse 9 that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to the place of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now for us, if we don't understand a map of uh, Israel and, and the Middle East there, we wouldn't understand what this journey might entail. Now, most scholars believe that Jesus traveled anywhere from 40 to 60 miles to come from Nazareth to the place of the Jordan where John was baptizing. That would take some days uh, by foot. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this fact, and I want to be careful of that, but let me say this. Being baptized by John was important to Jesus important enough that he would be willing to travel by foot for days and make that long journey for the opportunity to enter in to the waters of baptism. Now fast forward to our culture today. Sadly in our culture, far too, far too few Christians take the ordinance of baptism as the important command that the Lord has given Salvation, yes, is important. Our conversion experience of trusting Christ as our Savior is important. But I will add that there is far less written about us as saying the sinner's prayer or, or uh, giving our lives to Jesus or asking Jesus into our heart than there is about that experience happening in the waters of baptism according to the New Testament. And so we have elevated that which is not unbiblical, but it doesn't find a a, a clear example over and over again in the scriptures as baptism does as the entry point for the unbeliever into the world and life in Christ. Jesus would travel for days far from his home so that he would be able to experience what many of us can't take a couple steps to do. He wanted to be baptized. And our job as Christians is to follow in his footsteps. And our actions of saying no to Jesus when it comes to baptism speaks loudly to the heart that we have. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to do what Jesus has? Let me give you an old timbalism It's for free. You can use it. If it's important to Jesus and you're a Christian, then it should be important to you. And if baptism isn't important to you, if baptism is something that you just, every time you say, well, it's not that important, then how can you call yourself a believer when God says something is important, when God commands us that the first step of the Christian is to be baptized, and for you to say, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. Baptism is important. And it's so important that today we're going to give the opportunity at the end of this service, sponta, sponta, spontaneously. Thank you. Would have sat there for a while as I thought that word out. To give you the opportunity. Now, we did this some time ago. And we were blown away. We, we baptized over a dozen people on the spot. No clothes. Out in their cars with wet clothes. What an amazing opportunity thought, people obeying the command of God. We're going to give that opportunity this morning as well. What's that? I said wet clothes, didn't I? Remember, I'm on drugs. All right, we're going to move on. That was not in the notes. Thank you, Keith. That's his job, to be my conscience. Second, we see not only the distance, but the detachment. Notice for a moment that none of the gospel writers, including Mark himself, says anything about Jesus coming with anybody else. There's no family that is described in this context. And what I would say is that as we look at Jesus' example Nobody can do the baptizing for you, meaning you cannot go on the basis of someone else's desire. Jesus wanted to be baptized, therefore Jesus came. The New Testament shows us over and over again, while it is a command, baptism is something that you must do on your own accord. Mom and dad can't do it for you. Your husband or wife can't do it for you. Your small group leader can't do it. And even as much as I'm calling you to follow the commands of God, I cannot force you into that. We will not see someone being dragged into the water and pushed underneath just for the sake to say they're baptized. And they're saying, I don't want to be baptized. You're going to be baptized. I know we want to do that sometimes with some of our children. But you can't do that. It can't be forced. It must be done by a humble spirit and servant who says, Jesus did it, and now he calls me to it, therefore I will do it. Notice the destination. Write that down. We've seen the distance, the detachment. Notice the destination. It says that he was baptized. It wasn't good enough for Jesus just to be in a crowd. It wasn't good enough for Jesus just to amen the work of the uh, great Uh, preacher John the Baptist, yeah, tell them they need to be baptized and, and to be a part of that and to stand in awe of others who were baptized. But he did that which he intended in his heart to do. Some here have said over and over again, I'd like to be baptized. I should be baptized. But when it comes to taking that last and final step, instead of going into the water, you walk away from it. Jesus shows us the example From his place in Nazareth, in Galilee, to the Jordan River. He was intent on doing that which he accomplished. I have come to be baptized. I've intended that in my heart. And I will not be stopped until I am baptized. That needs to be the heart of some in this place today. Notice the demonstration. The demonstration. As Jesus enters into the water, we see some things take place. The first thing that takes place is that which takes place to Jesus. And that is, and write these down, so we've looked at a distance, we've looked at a detachment, we've looked at the destination, and now we've looked at the demonstration. Now, under this demonstration, we see a couple things. First of all, we see a humiliation. A humiliation. Of all the times that I've studied this, it is the first time that I've really thought of it this way. What a humiliating experience for Jesus. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus comes in, Jesus who had done no wrong, Jesus who had no sins to repent for, finds himself entering into the waters of baptism. The best way to illustrate that would be for us to go And be chained to the worst of criminals, the murderers and rapists and and thieves and, and all types of people of disrepute. And you are chained with them with the orange correctional outfit on and paraded before all of your friends and all others that are there to see. There's a part of us that would cry out, I'm innocent. I shouldn't be with these people. I've done no wrong." Jesus does none of that. But Jesus enters, identifying himself with Timberdall. Identifying himself with sinful humanity. And some of you, what I've heard time and time again, is man, it's tough to stand before all of these people and to articulate that I'm a sinner, that I've blown it. It's humiliating to tell people and to tell the world, I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. It's humiliating to get wet, to have water clinging and my clothes clinging to me. I'm not some Hollywood actor. I'm, I'm nervous about that. Let me tell you something. All humiliation that we can experience in the waters of baptism pale in comparison to the humiliation that Jesus had of being the sinless son of God, being recognized as a sinner. Now with the experience that would take place during those days, as soon as an individual would come out of the water, what would happen is as many would break out in confessing their sin. And so they would come out of the water and they say, I'm a thief and here's how I've stolen from individuals. I have a problem with my eyes. I have a problem with my tongue. And and now as one who has repented of it, I will no longer live that way. But Jesus didn't have anything to confess. And I think it is important that we recognize that Jesus doesn't do any of the talking that was traditional in John's baptism, but it was God who spoke. And notice what God does because there's an identification that takes place. Instead of Jesus saying anything, notice what Mark says. He says, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It takes place immediately. So Jesus doesn't have to speak. God knows Jesus has nothing to say. He has nothing to confess. And he identifies himself as Jesus. My son. The Father opens up heaven and he says, This is my son. This is my son. When we enter into the waters of baptism, an identification takes place. We identify with Christ. That is why we believe here at Village Bible Church that immersion is the best mode, that which we see from Scripture, that best symbolizes the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life of us, the believer. And so we identify as we go low into the waters, as we are plunged into our death and burial, and as we are brought out in the newness of life, what a beautiful picture, as simple as it is, that shows our identifying in the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ. But it is in that moment As a baptized individual, that that baptized one is identified by the local church and by, I might add, even uh, the greater church as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because it is there, not between you and God, but between you, God, and all others that we announce once and for all, I am a sinner saved by the almighty grace of God. It's an identification that takes place. Notice this, there's an affirmation. The affirmation is that I love you, it says. In you, I am well pleased. So he's been identified, you're my son. Now there's an affirmation. I love you, my son, and I am well pleased in what you are doing. Now up to this point, in our short study of Mark, Jesus has received affirmations on three different occasions. Notice, just turn the page if you need to, I know I do, in my Bible. But Mark affirms Jesus as the Son of God in verse 1. The prophets speak of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, in verses 2 and 3, that he's coming. We see that John the Baptist affirms that Jesus who is coming will be more powerful and more great and whose shoes and sandals I am worthy, not worthy to stoop down and untie. Three affirmations. But it is in his baptism that God speaks and says, I love you and I am well pleased. We long for the affirmation of men but it is in the moments on two occasions that God has given us, baptism and communion, that he calls us to, and that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that as long as our heart is right, and we are not just going through the motions, that God showers his love upon us and is in those moments that he is most pleased with his people because he has called us to these things. He has called his followers to these things. And when we do them, we can know that we are living in the pleasure of Almighty God. It is in this confession that takes place before men that Jesus says that when you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. That confession takes place most pointedly in the two ordinances that we celebrate, baptism and communion. Baptism is important, and we need to put it back on the pedestal that it should have. I know we're worried as evangelicals that we don't want people to think that's what saves us, and we'll make sure we preach to that end. But let us never diminish one of the greatest commands that Jesus gave, that if we believe, we are called to be baptized. And so in a couple moments, I'm going to ask those who want to be baptized to come. And so I leave it to the Spirit of Almighty God to impress upon your heart the need to do that this morning. If you've never been baptized as a believer in Christ Jesus, I pray today would be the day of your obedience. Let's move on. The second thing that we see that Jesus is the real deal is not only experiencing the joy that he did in being baptized, but engaging in victorious spiritual warfare. Mark shares... The first of many, 41 to be exact, words of immediately. As if he just moves on from one scenario to the next, it tells us that at once, immediately, suddenly, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, verse 12. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. Mark doesn't tell us much about this experience. Again, if you want to know more about this experience, you're going to have to look at Matthew chapter 4. And I'll hit on that passage just a little, but I want to be true to Mark's writing of this account. And what we see and what we need to recognize is if we want to be the real deal, and maybe we've been baptized. And we say, oh, I got that. That's, I'm set on that. I've done that, Tim. Then the question is, how are you dealing with everyday temptation? How are you dealing with fighting off the pursuits of this world and the pleasures of this world that God, through his word, has told us to stay away from? And notice what Jesus does. He's our example. Where first we see he was led by the Spirit. Write that in your outlines. He was led by the Spirit. The word in the NIV sent him is good, but it does not give the full force of the Greek meaning. Literally, he was thrusted. He was propelled into the wilderness by the Spirit. That's hard for us to understand. Why would the Spirit of Almighty God send us into a place of temptation? He does it to His Son. Shouldn't we be ready for Him to do that with us? And you would say, well, Tim, no, God would never do such a thing, and it's only something that He does to God. And I would remind you that a part of the Lord's Prayer is what? lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Now why in the world would God allow his son and subsequently then us into temptation? Because God recognizes that we need to prove our faith and our love for him and it would be easy to just allow us to only love him And of course we would worship Him, and of course we would adore Him. But when temptations come, in some ways we're put to the test to see if our faith, if our following of Jesus Christ and our following of God's ways is real or not. And so the Spirit allows, and I might add even at times, has the prerogative to thrust us into times of temptation, not to force us to sin, But to allow our faith, which is greater than any precious metal, to be tried by fire. And that's what takes place here that Mark articulates. He's thrown into the fire immediately after his baptism. And he's led by the Spirit. Write this down. He learned obedience. The text tells us that he is taken and he's thrusted into the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, to be told, I want you to go for 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness, I don't want you to eat, there are wild animals, you can't take anybody with you, no entertainment, no nothing, I'd really struggle with that. And I'm just a human being. Jesus The second person of the Trinity who enjoyed every pleasure and no needs in heaven because he is God was being thrusted into the wilderness to be by himself and to be tempted and to have to deal with the confines of human flesh, hunger, being tired, being weary, and on top of that because of having that flesh being susceptible to the temptations of the devil. No food, no bed, no friends, no comfort. I would say no way, but Jesus says yes. Why? Because he humbled himself and learned what it meant to be a servant. We need to do that as well. Notice, the next thing is that he laid it all on the line. He laid it all on the line. Now, I know I'm getting into some deep theological waters as we address this, but I want you to know that what Jesus endured wasn't some made-up set of trials and temptations. These were real temptations. These were temptations that Jesus would have to wrestle with. It wasn't like Jesus had this... um, Uh, supernatural shield around him that when the devil threw something at him, it just kind of bounced off and and it was never even thought of. To do that, we would elevate the godness of the God-man. So we have to recognize that he was, yes, 100% God, but in his humanity, he carried all of the hungers and all of the things that we long for and crave for, and the devil was aware of it. And so these temptations aren't something that just uh, were foreign to him. He'd say, no, of course I wouldn't go after these things. These were real temptations, and he was going to have to pass the test. Now notice the three tests that Matthew tells us are seen in Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation, write this down somewhere. I know I'm giving you a lot this morning, but write this down. In my words, the first temptation is the following. Will my physical needs trump or exceed my spiritual appetite? Will my physical needs trump or exceed my spiritual appetite? Jesus was hungry. The other gospel writers tell us that. And the first temptation that comes, comes to the issue of physical hunger. And we have a lot of physical hungers We have physical hunger I want to eat. And we have physical hunger to the appetite that our flesh has. And the question that Jesus was going to have to wrestle with and be victorious over was that my spiritual appetites of fulfilling the will of God far surpassed that which I had in my belly as a hunger. And some of us need to overcome temptation by asking the question... Is my body telling me what to do? Or is the spirit of almighty God exceeding and trumping everything that comes? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that I would love to do. And I'm being honest with you that I would absolutely, my body would yearn to do. But I have to constantly deny myself and take up the cross of Christ. And we have to do that because Jesus did that. He said, I'm not going to throw down stones and make bread. I could do it, but I'm not going to live out that prerogative in my life. Temptation number two is seen in Matthew 4, 5, and 6. And the question that it comes up to Jesus is, will my spiritual ca- character, will my spiritual character moderate the desire to grow an ego? Think about that for a moment. Is my spiritual character the humbling force in my life so that I don't grow an ego. i tell you, egos are as old as the Garden of Eden. Ego has been defined as edging God out. I like that. And boy, we're so prone to lavishing on people with their egos. This last week, my wife and I and the boys were in Dallas, Texas, and of course, there's tons of churches there, and we love visiting all the churches. And I told someone, we visited lots of great evangelical churches and saw what was going on. But then we went to the, the temple or the church of secular humanism, otherwise known as Cowboy Stadium. $1.3 billion. Two TVs that span 70 feet tall, and they span from the 20-yard line to the 20-yard line in total high def. We went on a tour of this place, and all we heard about was Mr. Jerry Jones, this. Mr. Jerry Jones, that. We went to his cubicle where he watches games, where he has a phone that he can call the NFL commissioner at any time, and he has this money, and he has that money, and he does this, and he does that, and whatever Jerry Jones says. And, and there was a part of me that says, I wish I was Jerry Jones. I want that kind of life just like Adam and Eve, we begin to think that our egos and our pride are of greater importance than our spiritual character. And Jesus says, no. Even though he was equaled with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Do we understand that this morning? Jesus had every right To be worshipped. Jesus had every right to prove and to shove it in the devil's face. I'll throw myself from this temple and my foot won't hit the ground because the myriad of angels will come to my rescue. Let me show you, you fathead, exactly who I am. That's ego. Let me prove who I am. And Jesus says, I will not put the Lord God to a test. I'm not going to let it happen. Because my relationship with my father is far more important than what I prove to you. Some of us need to stop proving things to people through the things that we have, through the smartness of who we are, and through all of the accolades that we seem to want to accumulate, and we need to say I want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing more. The third temptation that comes is does the satisfied soul does the satisfied soul desire to worship or control. Jesus will be confronted by the mother of all shortcuts. Have all the world, Jesus. You can have everything that you see. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus has given the greatest way out known to man. Don't go to the cross, Satan is saying. Don't, Don't do what you're supposed to do. Just bow down to me and I'll give you everything you want. You can be second in command. Why do you have to walk around in this flesh? Why do you have to endure all this? Just just Jesus, just be done with it. And again, Jesus says, I don't need the world. I just need my Father in heaven. And it ain't ever going to be. It's going to be, and I pardon the crassness of it, there's going to be a cold day in hell before I bow down to you, devil. I ain't going to do it. So I don't need to control. I need to worship God. And God alone. Jesus, over and over again, puts it on the line. And he does so, write this down, leveraging the tools that are at our disposal. Leveraging the tools at our disposal. Nowhere in any of the Gospels do we see that Jesus pulls out his great uh, uh, magic wand that deals with the devil. But he uses two tools that you and I have at our disposal. The leading of the Spirit and the Scriptures. Three times Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Do you know those are the same words that you and I can use to have the devil be resistant? If we're fulfilled by the Spirit and speaking words of truth to the devil, the Bible says, just as he had to in this experience that he has to flee us. He ain't going to hang around. And far too many of us are thinking once and twice and three times to these temptations. And they look really good. And instead of being the real deal, we fall prey because, because our faith is generic. Our faith is imitation. And so when the devil comes, he's got open opportunity to eat us up and to spit us out. And Jesus shows us we have everything that we need. We're gonna struggle with this temptation and temptations, we could lift them and all of us have them. And they may be different than the person sitting next to you, but the way to defeat them is the same way, being filled by the Spirit and using Scripture to call the devil away with his attacks. The final thing that we see this morning in our text, again, quickly, he moves us to an experience that takes place a year and a half later. And it's, Jesus, it's, it's John being put into prison. We're told that John no longer can do his ministry. And we know from other gospels why that takes place. We know that this being put in prison would inevitably lead to the beheading of John the Baptist. By uh, King Herod of the land. And so a year and a half has taken place. They call this the year of solitude. And it says Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus shows us that the real deal isn't just being baptized and it isn't just finding victory over sin, but it involves evangelizing the lost. Evangelizing the lost. There are two things I want you to see out of this. And that is, first of all, the framework of Jesus' ministry. And the framework of it is that Jesus went. It doesn't say that people came to Jesus. It doesn't say he waited for an opportunity. It doesn't say that uh, what he did was waited for someone else to preach the message so then he could talk to somebody about it. But it says he went, and where did he go? He went into Galilee. Where is Galilee? That's his home turf. He was from Nazareth of Galilee. It wasn't good enough for him just to uh, go into uh, a region that nobody knew him. He went to where he was from, and he proclaimed the good news. Some of us, some of us need to get off of our fannies and start serving the Lord by evangelizing the lost. A lot of us are willing to give money to faraway causes, but we won't walk across the lawn to talk to our neighbor both who are in need of the gospel of jesus christ and notice what jesus does in this first year of ministry what jesus does is he preaches the time has come there's an urgency there's a force to it he's focused in on preaching and he shares the good news and notice what he speaks of repentance and salvation the time has come it's no time of dilly-dallying anymore It's no time for us waiting for our neighbors to come and ask us, do you know the way to heaven? We don't have that kind of time. Our time now, we are called now to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded us to do. And Jesus shows us that he's the real deal. Can you say that? yourself today can i yes i've been baptized and i look with great affection upon that baptism that took place but far too much of my life is falling prey to the temptations that the devil throws my way and far too often i find myself not evangelizing and preaching the good news with the sense of urgency that jesus has called me to how about you I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And I want us to do some business with the Lord. And I want to ask three questions. And I'm going to go backwards. And I ask this morning. When it comes to evangelizing the lost. Are we doing it? Are we following Christ's example? How many opportunities this week have passed us? Because we found ourselves faithless in preaching the good news and repentance that brings forth salvation. How many people walked by our office door? How many neighbors did we interact with? How many schoolmates did we engage with? That we talked about that which is taking place in the world that is temporal instead of dealing with that which leads to eternal. How many want to change that this morning? I'm not going to force you to do this, and I don't want you to do it if it's not your heart's desire, but I'm going to ask, if that's your heart's desire, and that's something you want your community of believers to pray for you about, I'm going to ask that you would stand up and say, I want to do this in my life starting today. I want to reach out to my world. Who's willing to say, you can count on me. I'm going to do that this week. Who's willing to stand up and say that I'm going to take that opportunity. Now let me move to point number two. Some of us are struggling with temptation this morning. Some of us are tired of that same sin over and over again. Impacting our life. The lies that we continue to find ourselves living with. And I want you today, if you're struggling with a sin, we don't need to know what sin that is. I want you to stand and say, pray for me. I'm I'm in a battle that I cannot seemingly win on my own. And if there's a sin that you find yourself struggling with, I'm going to ask those that that uh, have stood to to say they're going to reach out to the lost. I want you to remain standing, but I want the rest to say—not the rest, but whoever is struggling with a temptation to stand up and say, "Man, I'm, I'm struggling with this, and I find myself just dying to this thing over and over again." If that's your heart, I want you to stand this morning, and I want you to say, "Pray for me. Pray for me. I am tired of dealing with this sin. It's driving me crazy." I want us to lift our heads up and I want us to look around and I want you as as a body, whether you're standing or sitting, to look around and say, I'm gonna pray for this individual. Look around and say, they're either dealing with a temptation or they're wanting to get right on the right track of sharing Jesus with people and I'm gonna pray for them this week because they're gonna need prayer because what happens is when we take a stand for God as Jesus did in his baptism, immediately, Mark says, he was tempted by the devil. And so you're going to take a stand for the Lord. The devil's coming after you. You're going to fight against your temptation. I can assure you of this. The devil's coming at you harder than you ever knew this week. You may be seated. Now, the final thing that we want to address is the first thing that we addressed. And I know we're going to go a little long, and we've already articulated that with our ABF leaders But I want to give an opportunity to those who have never been baptized. It's not as simple as just standing up and saying with a group of people, I believe. But Jesus says that we need to go into the water. And we need to be baptized. And we need to symbolize our affirmation and confirmation of what Christ has done. And I think we, I saw some people come down already, I believe. And we're going to be open to baptizing them and anybody else who will come. Now, there's one thing that we would ask. If you are 12 years and younger, we know that this is an important decision. And as the elders have worked through this uh, this issue, we believe that it's important that a child understands the full ramifications of baptism. And so we ask if you're 12 or under and and, uh, that you would uh, first of all spend some time with your mom and dad to discuss this issue as well as uh, to take uh, uh, some information that we have called Preparing Young People for Baptism. And if you're willing to do that Uh, we can get you that information and we'll baptize you when mom and dad say it's right and when you're ready to do that. So I'm going to ask anybody who's 12 years or older, if you want to be baptized, today is the time. Now is the moment that you can say finally, yes, once and for all, I'm going to obey Jesus in this way. I'm going to hand things over to Brother Keith and let's see what the Lord will do this morning.